John chapter 1, 35 through 42 will be our text. As you're opening the Bibles there, I do want to give you a, a very specific request regarding my daughter Emma. Uh, Emma, like many of you, struggles with allergies. And as things have begun blooming, the last week's been a little bit challenging. Uh, she's had a lot more drainage, which complicates things with her trach and her oxygen level. So just pray that God will get her through this and uh, continue to do well. We don't see any signs of infection, which is a real praise. We just think it's stuff's blooming. And that puts pollen in the air, which makes it tough for many of us. So please pray for her in that regard. The Lord will just clear that up. Uh, protect, put a protective bubble around her. Amen. God can do that. And just keep her from that. John chapter 1, uh, verses 35 through 42 is our text this morning. We pick up with John the Baptist, who for the second time sees Jesus and makes an astounding claim about Jesus and then does something even more amazing. So follow with me. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them what are you seeking and they said to him rabbi which means teacher where are you staying he said to them come and you will see so they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Would you bow with me in prayer once more? Gracious Lord, we come to your word knowing that it is your word. Therefore, we come expectantly. We anticipate, Lord, that you're going to reveal to us what we need for this day and the week ahead. So, Lord, give us ears to hear. Stir our hearts, O God, for your word is life. So let that life overflow within us abundantly. In the name of Jesus, I ask this. Amen. Let me begin with just a, a quick quiz to test your knowledge of trivia. The year is 1968. The group Three Dog Night has come out with their hit. So let me ask you this. What is the loneliest number? One. One is the loneliest number. That may or may not be the case, but I can tell you this. One is a number that surfaces frequently in the Scripture, specifically in the New Testament. Take this for example. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. And he says this. There is one spirit. There is one body. There is one Lord. There is one faith. Do you see a pattern here? There is one baptism. There is one God and Father of all. Now you're going to be hearing a lot about the number one over the next few weeks. That's because next Sunday, we are beginning an emphasis to lead us up till Easter. This emphasis is called, Who's Your One? 
Now, the plan is very simple. Next week, we are going to ask you to identify one person that God has laid upon your heart that needs to know the gospel. Now, there may be many people that you know. All of them need to know the gospel. But what we're going to do is ask the Holy Spirit to lay one specific person on your mind. Then we're going to ask you to make a commitment to pray for them. Then as God opens the door, to talk with them about the gospel. And then invite them to come to church on Easter Sunday morning. So I ask you now to begin thinking about who is your one. Maybe a family member. Could be a neighbor, a co-worker. It may be the server at the restaurant that you go to every other day. It may be the barista at Starbucks that's gotten to know you on a first-name basis and knows what your drink is. That may be the person God lays on your heart. Now, I know in hearing this, there's a sense of, what's he going to ask us to do? And this fear begins to rise. Because we begin to get fearful of, what will I say? What will people think? And I want you to do this, okay? I want you to just quash that fear right now with the commitment to say, Lord, you will supply what I need to be faithful. And there are two things I want you to keep in mind. First is this, no guilt. I know that anytime a pastor preaches on evangelism or witnessing, there's a level of guilt that we start to feel. Because, let's face it, how many of us talk about Jesus as much as we should? I exactly. So don't feel guilty. Now, I do hope there's a conviction. You see, a conviction says, you know what? This is what the Scripture says, so moving forward, this is what I'm going to do. That's conviction. Guilt wallows in the past and starts to feel horrible and bad plus we feel guilty because the truth is we wonder I don't know what to say what should I say when I talk to a person I ought to know that so no guilt often we are like the young um, novice at a monastery who was called in by the abbot and the abbot said to this young novice in the monastery tomorrow you are going to give the devotion in chapel the novice was terrified the next morning, all the monks at the monastery had gathered, and this young novice stands in front of them with his knees knocking, his voice quivering, sweat rolling off his forehead. And as he stands there after a moment of silence, he says, Do you know what I'm going to say? They had no idea. So in unison, all the monks, they shake their head no. And the young novice says, Neither do I. Let's stand and have the benediction. The abbot was furious calls him back in the office that afternoon and says, this will not do. Tomorrow, you're going back behind that pulpit. You're going to give the devotion. Next morning, same scene. The young novice is nervous, scared to death. As he comes up, there's a long pause, and he says to the, to the monks that are gathered, do you know what I'm going to say? After the previous day's experience, they had a pretty good idea, so most of them nodded their head yes. So the novice says, well, then there's no need for me to tell you. Let's stand and have the benediction. The abbot hit the roof. You've got to do this. You've got, you're going up there tomorrow, and you're going to give the devotion. The next morning at chapel, it was standing room only because all the monks wanted to see what was going to happen next. The time comes. The young novice stands up there, and it was an exact repeat. He stood trembling, and he said, do you know what I'm going to say? At this point, there was a little bit of confusion. 
Half of the congregation shook their head no. The other half nodded yes. So the young novice looked and he said, for those of you who know what I'm going to say, tell the others who don't. Let's stand and be dismissed. Sometimes that's how we feel. We don't know what to say. We know we need to say something, but we feel guilty, so we don't know. Well, I want to tell you, we are going to be working over the next few weeks to encourage and equip. And then we're going to trust God. Because let me tell you, if God can raise the dead, he can equip us to speak. Amen? So we're going to trust him. Second thing is this. I want you to remember that God can and will work through you. The power of God is not just for somebody else. When Jesus looked at his disciples, he said, You, you will receive power. And through the scripture, we recognize the spirit dwelling within us will empower us and equip us that we may be that person who makes a difference in someone's life for eternity. I want you to believe or I want you to think for just a moment about how you came to know the Lord. Was there one person that was pivotal in you coming to faith? Now, there may have been many that planted the seeds. There may have been many that watered. But usually there is one person that God uses in a special way to bring you to faith. For me, it was a youth worker at First Baptist Athens, Tennessee, a man by the name of Rick Wilson who went the extra mile to show the love of Christ and to make me really think seriously about my faith. My parents had taught me. Sunday school teachers had, had helped me to learn But God used one person at one particular time to make a difference in my life. You can be that one for somebody else. Don't discount what God can do through the power of one. And we are reminded in this passage today of how important the number one is. One comes to the forefront here. And I want you to recognize as we work through this passage how important it is that we say, Lord, use me. Because... There is only one sacrifice for sin. Notice in verse 36. As John is standing there with two of his disciples, Jesus walks by. And John makes an amazing statement about Jesus. In fact, it's the second time John the Baptist has said this. Behold, in other words, look, the Lamb of God. That phrase, the Lamb of God, is sacrificial language. It refers to the lamb that would be spotless and innocent and would be slain for one's sins. But this phrase takes on a little more added significance when you look at the overall arc of the Gospel of John. You see, John took the the theme of the Exodus and he wove it throughout the Scripture. For example, the Exodus was about freedom. Well, guess what? Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. So when John says, behold, the Lamb of God, it has the nuance not just of sacrifice, but of the specific Lamb that was sacrificed just before the Exodus. I would remind you the children of Israel were in slavery. They were burdened with making bricks. Life was hard. They were enslaved. And when God rose up Moses to set the people free, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, said, no, I will not set them free. So God began sending plagues one plague after another, and Pharaoh wavered. Sometimes he would say, enough's enough, send them out, and then he would change his mind. Finally, after nine plagues, God speaks through Moses to Pharaoh and says, there will be one more. The death angel is going to come throughout the land. And on that night, the firstborn of every family, of every flock, will die. 
There's only one way to escape death. When the death angel comes, if a family has taken a spotless lamb and sacrificed it and placed its blood over the doorpost, when the death angel comes to that house and sees the blood, it will pass over that house. Understand what was taking place. The angel of death passed over because death had already visited that house. That animal was killed in the place of the firstborn. It's a picture of what Jesus did, that when he died, he was the Lamb of God who died for our sins so that death and sin has no claim upon us. Why? Because Jesus has died in our place. Now notice the, the, that little three-letter definite article, the Lamb of God. It does not say a Lamb of God. It's the. There's no other Lamb. There's no other way of salvation. There's no other way to escape death. Jesus himself emphasized this in John 14 when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's an audacious claim. And it's one that many today simply reject because they say, well, when it comes to spiritual things, surely there are many ways to get to God, many ways to atone for our sin. So the issue really comes down to authority. Should we believe Jesus when he says this or not? And the answer we have as a church is, yes, we should believe him. First of all, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be God in the flesh. And the second thing is, that claim was validated with one act, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Therefore, because of the resurrection, because it validates Jesus as God, we must hear what he says when he says there is no other way to be saved. To take him at his authority and to follow him. Rick Matson is an author who wrote a book called Faith is Like Skydiving. Rick admits that he was having trouble sleeping because apparently he said, I snore a lot. And he was finally convinced to go visit a sleep specialist. But he was skeptical. You see, when he went into the doctor, he told him, fine, I'm doing your study, but I will not wear one of those CPAP machines because he was convinced that the doctor was getting kickback from the CPAP machine companies. So he said he spent the night with electrodes stuck on his head, and the next morning the doctor comes and gives him the diagnosis. You have sleep apnea. You must wear a CPAP machine. Rick said, I was skeptical, and I left there shaking my head. So I called a friend of mine who was a doctor. Rick said, I told him what the, the, the doctor had said, and he said, my friend who has an MD said, your doctor is the real deal. Wear the CPAP machine, and you'll have more time on earth enjoying your grandchildren. So he said, every night now I put on the mask, and I sleep well. Why? Because of authority. He said, the authority of that sleep specialist was confirmed. So I recognized, because I recognized his authority, I needed to hear what he said and do it. Jesus has the authority to say, I am the Lamb of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what that means, brothers and sisters, is that if a person dies without faith in Jesus Christ, they stand under the judgment of God. And if a person dies without believing in Jesus Christ, they will spend eternity in hell. That's the reality of it.
And the world around us is asking, seeking salvation. No, your friends may not put it in those words. But that's what they're seeking in the pleasure that they pursue. That's what they're seeking is to know, is there some way that I can atone for my wrongs? And God has entrusted us with the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ has died for your sins. Place your faith in Him and be forgiven. Because there is no other way. Church, this brings us back to our purpose. Look in verse 37. The two disciples that were with John followed Jesus. Now notice what is lacking there. You don't find John saying, hey, go check out Jesus, then be sure to come back to me. All right, I'm your bread and butter. I've brought you this far. Crowds have been coming to hear me preach. Check out Jesus, but come back. That's not what John says, is it? John the Baptist says, I must decrease. Jesus must increase. Why? Because John knew his purpose. There was one purpose. John was put on this earth to point people to Jesus Christ. Everything else was subservient under that purpose. Church, we have a purpose. Jesus spoke to the disciples and he said, Go, as you are going, make disciples. Teaching and preaching, baptizing them in the name of Jesus. What did he say in the passage we read earlier, Acts 1.8? You will receive power. When you receive power, what will happen? You will be my witnesses, starting where you are and then spreading out to Judea, Samaria, and the other parts of the world. That's our purpose. There are other things that we enjoy, the fellowship we have, but our purpose is sharing the gospel. We enjoy the laughter we have, but our purpose is sharing the gospel. I love the story of missionary Eric Little. He's famous from the movie Chariots of Fire because in 1924, uh, he competed in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. And he ran an event that he normally didn't run because his event took place on a Sunday. He had a commitment that he wouldn't run on Sundays. What people don't know about Eric Little is this, though. He ended up being a missionary to China where eventually he was martyred. As his fame as a runner was growing prior to the Olympics, his sister, Jenny, became very worried that Eric was spending too much time running and was forgetting about his call to preach the gospel. Jenny confronted her brother about this. Eric, have you forgotten? Eric Little's response was this. He said, Jenny, God made me for a purpose. And that purpose is China. And I will go and I will preach the gospel. But Jenny, God also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his good pleasure. Church, there are many things we do in running and we feel God's good pleasure. But never forget our purpose. We are here to point people to Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. And we need to come back to that reminder I love the little anecdote Tony Evans, pastor of Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas, told when he was at an airport one time. He was waiting at the gate when the loudspeaker announced that his flight was delayed. And as he was sitting there waiting, hunger pains began to increase in his stomach, so he decided to go get something to eat. And he said, no sooner had I ordered my lunch and sat down getting ready to eat it that the call came over the, the intercom flight 1407 for Dallas is now boarding. Tony Evans said, now I had a choice. I could sit there and I could enjoy this lunch that I wanted so bad. I was salivating to eat this. 
or I could go get on the plane. And he said, the reality came to me. I didn't go to the airport to get a lunch. I came to the airport to get on a plane. That's why so I left that lunch behind. He said, it's coming back to saying, why are we here? Our one purpose is like John the Baptist, to point people to Jesus. And to do this with one invitation. Look at verse 42. Andrew goes and finds his brother, Simon Peter. So Andrew's one of the two that left John the Baptist to go and is with Jesus. And look at what he says to his brother Simon. We have found the Messiah. Now, I want you to use your imagination with me for just a moment. How do you think Simon shared that news with his brother? Do you think he was, I don't know, almost coy about it? Um, Simon, by the way, I just wanted to let you know, I... I think we could have found the Messiah, maybe. You got a few moments just to come and check it out? Or do you think that Andrew went to his brother and said, Simon, we have found the Messiah. We've been longing for him. Come with me. I think it was the latter. I think that Andrew was overflowing with joy and that joy was contagious because guess what? Joy is contagious. And I think one of the best things that we could do evangelistically is to show the joy of the Lord in our lives. To remember that we are saved by grace. And grace means we don't have to carry the horrible burden of being good enough or earning our way into heaven. We are free to enjoy Christ and one another. Amen and amen. Sometimes I think we need to come together and sing again. I've got the joy, joy, joy deep down in my heart. And to be reminded of that. See, what happens to many believers is when we first come to faith, we are so excited and happy. But then after a while, we get weighed down and we forget grace. We forget that we are saved by grace. And we start carrying the heavy burden of legalism where we think we have to earn it. Joy is attractive. Think about this. You ever been in a room where somebody starts laughing? How soon is it before other people in that room start laughing also? Joy. I love the story that Brennan Manning tells in his book, The Wisdom of Tenderness. Brennan Manning says that several years ago, a man by the name of Edward Farrell of Detroit took a two-week vacation to travel to Ireland to visit his favorite uncle. His favorite uncle, Seamus, was turning 80. So he's going to be in Ireland to celebrate Uncle Seamus' 80th birthday. The morning of the birthday came, and they got up early and dressed early, but even before the sun came up, and they went out to Lake Killarney. And there they stood next to each other in silence and watched the sun rise. Not a single word was exchanged between them. Then after a few moments, Uncle Seamus turned and started doing this. Skipping. 80-year-old Uncle Seamus was skipping. Edward Farrell says that he, he ran and caught up with Uncle Seamus. He said, Uncle Seamus, what's, what's going on? He looked very happy. What's, what's going on here? And Uncle Seamus said, yes, lad, I'm very happy. You see, the Father is fond of me. The Father is very fond of me. Church, did you know the Father's fond of you? He loves you. Remember that. When the world tries to weigh you down, remember the Father's fond of you. 
He loves you. And if we remember that, there will be a joy in our lives that's attractive. So I want to ask you to begin thinking, who will be your one? Next week, we'll ask for a commitment that you'll begin praying for that one. Like I said, no guilt. We'll begin encouraging, equipping, taking a look at what we can do to encourage one another and praying that our joy will increase so that when Easter Sunday morning comes, this place will be overflowing, not just with people, but with joy found in Jesus. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now. I want to be down at the front, and of course, if the Lord is moving on your heart, I'll be here at the front to pray with you. You don't even have to come to me, though. You can come to the kneeling bench, and maybe already the Lord is stirring in your heart and mind of a family member, a friend, a co-worker. He's telling you, you need to be like Andrew and just go to them and say, I have found the Messiah. This week we'll be praying. Who's our one, O oh Lord? Lord, remind us of the truth. There's no other way. And Lord, let us know the joy of your grace. The joy of knowing that you love us with an everlasting love. Father, I pray for revival and renewal. I pray for spiritual awakening. Lord, I pray that as we come approaching Easter, we'll start seeing people saved. And Father, you can do this, Lord, because you have given us power. And it's your desire that all people come to the knowledge of the truth. So Lord, we pray with confidence, praying for the salvation of friends, family members, co-workers. Lord, give us joy in doing this. Let our joy overflow because of your great love. Help us to be faithful to the purpose you've given us in Jesus Christ. Amen.